You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Eric Barton. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. Thanks, Matt. Well, again, I want to say good morning. I am delighted that you're here. The church is God's plan for your life. I don't even need to know every single one of you, but here's what I can say with absolute biblical certainty. The local church is God's plan for your life. And I hope and I pray that this is that local church. But if it's not, we want to help you get connected to a local church someplace because we're convinced you will never be the new creation God recreated you to be apart from a fellowship of believers with whom you can do life on a daily basis. So, To that end, there are a lot of things going on in the sort of warp and the woof, the community rhythm of this place. First of all, immediately after our second service today, we're having our campus church picnic, and we've chosen the most refreshing weather we could drum up. So, you know, we don't want people sweating out there. That's un, that's ungood. And so it'll be brisk and uh, you won't have to complain about air conditioning. But it's immediately after our second service. So right about 11.50, noon o'clock, we will be uh, downstairs outside in the, uh, what we now call the Bethel Outdoor Space, hashtag parking lot. And if you can't deal with the brisk winds, uh, you can also bring food in and fellowship and have time uh, with one another in the first floor listening room as well. But we really want everybody to come down to have conversations, to have some meaningful interaction and engagement. Now, after that, uh, in a couple Sundays, on Sunday, April 29th, we're having what we call Discover Bethel. This is a, a class for potential or prospective members who have been visiting for some time, but you get to come and have lunch with us right after church on the second floor, you meet the staff, some of the elders, some of the deacons, some of the volunteer ministry leaders, and we get to explain really who we are, what we're doing here, what we're trying to accomplish, the doctrine of the church, the vision of the church, why we do the things we do, why we don't do some of the things that we don't do, and really it's one of my favorite things that we get to do every quarter. We're doing it Sunday, April 29th, right after the second service. Um, You can let us know, you can sign up for that, I believe in the foyer, or there is sort of a universal number that we use, a phone number that we use that's uh, an easy way to get in touch with us for everything. So if you are visiting with us this morning, and we would love to have a record of your attendance, you can either fill out the card in the seat back pocket in front of you, which we would greatly appreciate, and drop it in the plastic folder box on your way out, or you can simply text your email address to this number, and let us know that you're here. We'll follow back up with you and see how we can continue to help you get connected. This is also, by the way, the same number that you can just tell us, hey, I'm coming to Discover Bethel on April 29th. Great, we would love to know that. And this happens to also be the same number that as we're going along the day, either during the worship set or during the sermon portion, if you've got a question, and think, hmm, I'm not so sure I understood that, or no, I do understand it, and I flat disagree, you can text that number. I'll read those questions, and if we get questions during the week, we put together a little social media video in response, and we answer those questions. We have a lot of fun in doing that. All that just to say, we really want you to be involved in the life of another believer, another group of believers. We believe that is our purvey. This is what God has called us to do. And we believe as leaders that one day we will stand and we will give an account before the risen Lord Jesus whose eyes are like blazing fire. And he's not going to say, was the floor polished? He's gonna say, did you introduce them to me over and over again? 
And so our answer, I pray God, will be yes. And so to that end, I'm going to invite you to pray with me, and then we're going to continue to worship together as we unpack God's word. So let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are, for what you've done in Christ to redeem us to yourself and to one another. I pray, God, that as we are known by you, we would have the courage, the boldness, the transparency, the authenticity, and the sincerity to know one another. And in so doing, that we would establish a tight bond of fraternal fellowship, love, and acceptance, because that is a demonstration of your gospel. So may it be exactly as I have prayed, Father, and this morning, would you by your spirit move among your people and in, in a very real sense, amplify the teaching of your word. I pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, welcome to April 15th. Yay, the most fun day of the calendar. It's April 15th. Yep, that's how I feel about it too. Explosives to the checking account. But I want to remind those of you who have been here for a while that we've been this entire spring semester studying through First and Second Samuel, going through the life of of David, this warrior, poet, shepherd, and king, trying to understand how does David, the recipient of a covenant with God, how does that point us to and prepare us for the ultimate son of David, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, that will come some thousand years later. And we've covered a lot of ground. Believe it or not, after today, we will only have three more messages in our Life of David sermon series. We're drawing to a close. Last week, we got from 2 Samuel chapter 13 all the way through 15. We now have David as an older man. He's 61 years old. David is anointed king, is probably a young mid-teenager, and it takes him 20 years, 20 years, to finally take the kingdom and reign from Jerusalem. He reigns seven years in a place called Hebron, but it takes him 20 years to actually ascend to the throne and be the king in Jerusalem. Matthew Henry, a famous commentator, said, yes, God takes a long time to raise up great men and women. It takes him no time to raise a cabbage. And so sometimes we may be thinking, God, you're taking way too long on this deal. Let's speed it up. I got somewhere to be, and I have to thump myself in the soul and go, hey, you're thinking like a cabbage. Let the Lord lead. So this morning, we finally get to 2 Samuel chapter 16. I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles with me to 2 Samuel chapter 16. I'm reminded this week, as I was looking through this text, of one of my heroes in the faith, I'm convinced that for the first 30, 40 billion years of eternity, I will probably be cutting her grass. Her name is Corrie Ten Boom. And she was a wonderful saint uh, who's Dutch and was taken uh, prisoner by uh, the Third Reich in uh, the time of World War II and suffered in a concentration camp. And she tells this story of how mentally and emotionally and spiritually she was able to endure and withstand all of that difficulty in the death camps. And she said, I remember asking my father, who was a Dutch watchmaker, but a very wise, sweet-spirited man, asking him about the things of God. What is God like? What does God do? Why is God's will what it is? And is God sovereign? And if so, what does that mean? And Corey Ten Boom would say that my father explained to me, Corey, when we take the train, when do you give the train conductor the ticket? 
And she would say, at the very end of the ride. And he would say, right. And when do I give you the train ticket? And she said, right before I give it to the conductor. He said, yes. You don't have it until you need it, but it's always with me. And you trust me. I will always have your ticket. It was good enough for a little girl in the Netherlands. It was good enough for a woman who was going to the death camps. And she remembered, God may not have given me the ticket, but exactly when I need it, he will give it. Either in life or in death and life everlasting. It's a great lesson for us. And we get to sort of see that same truth play out throughout this text. So our big idea for the morning as we are all of us either in a season or will go into a season, we are tempted to lose heart. Our big idea for the morning is this. At just the right time, God delivered us from our enemy. At exactly the right time, at precisely the right moment, God delivered us from our enemy. So we are in 2 Samuel and chapter 16. Now, before I can start reading in chapter 16, I need to just do a very quick review of the last four verses or so of chapter 15. Um, David has been told that Absalom, has his son, his very good-looking son, has launched a coup, an insurrection, a revolt, and a rebellion. By the way, I should point out that to rebel against the king of Israel is to rebel against Yahweh himself. The king of Israel is God's anointed ruler. And so to say, I want another king is to say, I want another God. It's very, very serious what Absalom has done. And David, as a shepherd king to protect his people, has decided to flee and escape rather than stand and fight because he knows that Absalom will butcher the inhabitants. And so David goes out of the palace, heads east, goes out the east gate, down the Kidron Valley, across the brook, up and over the Mount of Olives. And as he's going over the top of the Mount of Olives, one of the translations, I think, rightly says, and David worships. Seems like an unlikely time to stop and have praise, but David worships on the Mount that is given praise, on the Mount of Olives, where Jesus would frequently go and weep. And David worships, and it is told to him, Ahithophel, the great grand counselor, has gone over to the side of Absalom. And David simply fires off a prayer right then and there and says, God, please confuse the counsel of Ahithophel. Ahithophel, if you might remember, happens to be the grandfather of Bathsheba. And Ahithophel has apparently changed sides and is now going to be an advisor, a cabinet member to Absalom. And as soon as he says that in chapter 15, as soon as he prays, his next inhale is a dusty one. Because up walks a man named Hushai. And all we're told is that Hushai has his, his cloak torn and dirt on his head and he is mourning. And David encounters him and says, Hushai, what are you doing here? He says, I'm here to serve you. He says, no, you're not gonna go with me. I need soldiers. I don't need cabinet members. In fact, you'll be a burden to me. But here's what you can do. You are a friend of the king. Now that's not just a social status. That's an actual formal title as an advisor. You go back. You go back into Jerusalem, and I need you to be my spy, my mole, my eyes and ears. Zadok the priest is there, Jonathan is there, and their sons are there. Whatever you find out from Absalom, you tell them, they'll tell their boys, and they'll come and tell me, now go get them. And Hushai does. Now, in all reality, really chapters 13 through 20 is this long, sordid tale where who's going to counsel whom and who's going to listen. So then, finally, 
chapter 16 of 2 Samuel. When David had passed a little beyond the summit, that's of the Mount of Olives, heading east, there's a progression. He keeps going farther and farther east. Now, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him. You might remember Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth was one of the sons of Saul that David showed kindness to, brought him to his home, sat him at his table, treated him like a son because Mephibosheth was crippled in both legs. He's the grandson of Saul, the son of Jonathan. And Ziba is his servant and has been for 30 years. Ziba has been faithfully serving Mephibosheth in Jerusalem. And so Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, met him with a couple of donkeys saddled, probably better there, a string of donkeys saddled, bearing 200 loaves of bread, 100 bunches of raisins, 100 of summer fruits, that's like dates, and a skin of wine. Dude brought snacks. Everybody likes the guy who brings snacks. I mean, it's been a horrible escape. You had to leave the city fearing for your life, and ooh, fruit roll-ups, yes, who wouldn't want to see that guy? Everyone wants to see that guy. And the king said to Ziba, why have you brought these? Instantly suspicious. What are you doing? How, how did you get out? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and summer fruit for the young men to eat and the wine for those who faint in the wilderness to drink. And the king said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. And where is your master's son? Your master, what is Saul, where is his son, his descendant, his grandson, Mephibosheth? I'm thankful for the goodies, but where's the man? Where's the boy that I took in and showed kindness to for three decades now? I miss him. Where is he? Behold, he remains in Jerusalem, verse 3. For he said, Mephibosheth said, Today the house of Israel will give me back the kingdom of my father. Then the king said to Ziba, Behold, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is now yours. And Ziba said, I pay homage. Let me never find favor. Let me ever find favor in your sight, my lord the king. And so what we see with this brief little Ziba narrative is that David's going to encounter the first of three enemies. Ziba, although he's the dude that brought snacks, is a lying serpent. He's lying through his teeth. He is the picture of treachery. He has, we'll find out later, completely lied about Mephibosheth, taken Mephibosheth's stuff, offered it to David, and David shooting from the hip because of a, a season of stress, of fear, uncertainty, doubt, and fatigue, makes a snap decision. Old football coach Jimmy Johnson said, fatigue makes cowards of us all. And David is weary, he's stressed, he's uncertain. He does not know how this is going to turn out. And so he hears this, and there happens to be a string of donkeys saddled with food, and he says, that tears it. I can't believe the treachery of that boy, that ingrate, and he issues the king's edict to deed everything now to Ziba. Now what's really telling is, Ziba and his men don't continue on with David. That would have been the ultimate show of loyalty and servitude, but oh no. Ziba's thinking, I got it. I have the king's ex, and so he goes back to Jerusalem, which must have been absolutely brutal for Mephibosheth, who has been the master for 30 years but is now told, you are the servant. Now serve me. 
And this crippled man now has to figure out how to survive in a very, very horrible situation. So the first enemy that we see is that David encounters a lying serpent. But unfortunately, it actually gets worse. Verse 5, when King David came to Baharim, so he continues to go east, deeper and deeper into the wilderness. This is probably close to the Jordan River, maybe it's close to even Jericho. There came out a man of the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shammai, the son of Gera. So that means we know for sure that he is from the tribe of Benjamin, as was Saul. And he came, he cursed continually. Some people are told in scripture to pray without ceasing. This dude curses without ceasing. And after a while, you figure his vocabulary has got to run low. Oh no, this dude was eloquent. He invented ways of cursing. He just kept going at it. And he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. So his mighty men, David's mighty men, are sort of surrounding him and protecting him. But this dude's got the high ground. He's walking along beside them, up the hill, parallel to them, and he's throwing down dirt, and he's throwing down rocks, and the text literally says, with dirt he dirted them. (laughs) Verse 7, And Shimei said, as he cursed, Get out, get out, you man of blood, you worthless man. A character assault. The Lord has avenged on you all the blood of the house of Saul. That is a lie. David never spilled any blood of the house of Saul. He could have killed Saul himself multiple times, but never did. Other members of the house of Saul, Ishbosheth and Abner, were killed, but not by David. In fact, David commanded that they not be killed. So this is a flat out lie. You have. All the blood you have brought on the house of Saul, in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has given the kingdom into the hand of your son, Absalom. That is a lie. God had promised David, you will be the king, and it will not go through Absalom. We already know that it's going to go through Solomon. See, your evil is on you, for you are a man of blood. That is a lie. If Ziba was a lying, forked-tongued serpent, this is a lion. This is a full frontal assault and a character assassination. Then, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, then verse 9, then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, who by the way was one of the mighty men, this is the kind of guy who kills hundreds of Philistines over a bean field. This is the kind of guy who jumps into a snowy pit and fights a fussy, hungry lion and kills it with his bare hands. Abishai, who is the brother of Joab, says... Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? In other words, okay, I'm a little bit tired of this. We, we don't need to listen to this nonsense anymore. Let me go over and take off his head. <laughs> See, Abishai is a well-tested soldier. He has learned something very important, that men without heads do not curse. So you want to you wanna stop the cursing, you just take off the cursor. It's pretty a simple deal there. But what's absolutely astounding is what David says in response. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? What do you and I have in common? How am I like you? I'm not. I'm not like you, Abishai. I'm not like you, Joab. If he is cursing because the Lord has said to him, Curse David, 
Who then shall say, why have you done so? Interesting. Perhaps God has done this. Perhaps God is actually using this man's wickedness to get my attention. It's really a fascinating observation. This man, Shammai, has essentially come out and harangued him with accusation after accusation. And the sum total of those accusations basically boils down to this. God doesn't love you. You have gone beyond his grace. He's through with you. You ever listen to a whisper of accusation like that? Boy, I have. I call it Sunday afternoon. You are gone God doesn't love you. He's disappointed. You have gone beyond his grace. And he is relentless in saying all this. And David says, no, 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 no. The answer to this problem is not might and muscle. The answer to this problem is what I know to be true about my God. This is what he says. It's one of the most surprising verses. He says in verse 10, the king said, what have I to do with you guys? If he's cursing because the Lord has said to him, curse David, then Who shall then say, why have you done so? Verse 11, then David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my own son seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite? Of course he's cursing. Even my own kin, my own flesh and blood's trying to kill me. Of course this left-handed Benjamite's trying to kill me. Where's the surprise? Leave him alone and let him curse. For the Lord has told him to. And then one of the most surprising verses, verse 12, it may be, Perhaps the Lord will look on the wrong done to me and the Lord will repay me with good for this cursing today. Except that I don't think that's the right translation. This is a textual problem. Some of your Bible translations might have a different word there. In verse 12, it may be that the Lord will look on the wrong. The word is hawan, and it could be translated wrong. A lot of translations do that. But I don't think that's it. I think the better translation is iniquity. It's just so shocking that he would say this. The word hawan is iniquity. So let me read it thus. It may be that the Lord will look on my iniquity and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing today. What an astonishing picture of grace. What if God looks on my sin that there's no question, chapter 12, He's called out for the sin of killing Uriah and sleeping with Bathsheba. But what if God looks on my sin and turns it to blessing? What if God actually reverses the curse? What a story of hope this is. So, verse 13, David and his men went on the road while Shimei went along the hillside opposite him and cursed him as he went and threw stones at him and dirted dirt. <laughs> This dude's going along the high road, and they're going, you guys hear that still? Yep, I still hear him. Here he comes. So they're walking along the road. Shammai's up on the hills, and he's just throwing stuff down on them the entire way. Just nonstop berating them. God's disappointed in you. God doesn't like you. God doesn't love you. God doesn't want you. You've gone beyond his grace. You see, there, there is an accuser that accuses the brethren day and night. Enemies are serpents. Enemies are lions. Verse 14, and the king and all the people who were with him arrived weary at the Jordan, and there he refreshed himself. He shabbat, he rested, exhausted, but they've made it. So first he encounters a serpent, then he's going to encounter uh, the lion. Now he's going to encounter something even more cunning, a third enemy. 
Now, verse 15, Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel with him. Oh, Absalom must be thinking, I got here without having to fire a shot. It took David 20 years to ascend the throne in Jerusalem. Absalom's thinking, it hadn't even taken me a year. Oh, he plotted and he conspired for about 11 years here and there. But when he finally executes his plan, it happens virtually overnight. And he's thinking, I love it when a plan comes together. He enters Jerusalem and Ahithophel, his cabinet member, comes. And when Hushai the archite, David's friend, again, that's a technical term. It's a friend of the king. It's a cabinet office, came to Absalom. Hushai said to Absalom, and this is brilliant statecraft, brilliant wisdom. He says, long live the king, long live the king. But he doesn't say which king. He just says, long live the king. And Absalom said to Hushai, is this your loyalty to your friend? And he changes the word friend to a different word there, sort of belittling him. Why did you not go out with your friend? And Hushai said to Absalom, No, for whom the Lord and his people and all the men of Israel have chosen, his I will be, and with him I will remain. It's really brilliant. Hushai does not use names. No, no, I'm going to continue to serve God's king and the one that Israel needs and loves. That's the king that I will continue to serve. Well, Absalom is taken by this flattery. And again, whom should I serve? Should it not be his son? And as I have served your father, so I will serve you. You're here now, I'm going to serve you. But I am not throwing all that I have. And he never says that he does. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give your counsel, give your verdict. What shall we do? Ahithophel said to Absalom, go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, and all Israel will hear that you have made yourself a stench to your father, and the hands of all who are with you will be strengthened. Ugh. This is lewd. Ahithophel is going to give awful counsel, really dark, depraved, deranged counsel, and it is in keeping with God's judgment against David. The consequences. Way back in chapter 12, God says, what you have done in secret and in darkness, your household will do in broad daylight before the entire nation. Make no mistake, Ahithophel is responsible for these wicked counselings and God superintended to accomplish his perfect purpose precisely on time. So, verse 22, they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, not just any roof. This was probably the exact same roof where David had stood when he had seen Bathsheba. And don't think that grandfather Ahithophel didn't know it. This is his way of saying, we're crossing the Rubicon. This is the point of no return. When you do this, there's no going back. We are sealing this deal. And Absalom, of course, is all too quick to comply. Verse 22, so they pitched a tent, a little cabana on the roof and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Incidentally, we don't have a church library at this campus, but if we did, you'll never find the veggie tales of this story. It's just, you're not gonna find it. So if you're looking, and if you do find it on YouTube, stop, don't watch it. That's not a veggie tales, okay? Don't, you're not gonna find this one. We don't usually talk about this one in the nursery. So it's really kind of ribald and lewd and graphic. I'm not gonna dwell on it. We're gonna move on. 23, now in those days, the counsel that Ahithophel gave was as if one consulted the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel esteemed, both by David and by Absalom. This guy is a clever, conjuring politician. Another enemy brought. Now, Ahithophel knows better, 
Because several hundred years prior, Reuben, the eldest son of Jacob, had gone into his father's concubines to try to assert himself and to take over power, and Jacob curses him for it. It does not work. In fact, Leviticus is exceedingly clear. Chapter 11, you may not go into your father's concubines or stepmother. You may not do that. That is a deep, uh, egregious offense. And Ahithophel knows this. But he is still so driven by vengeance that it leads him to act this way. He's still driven to be dangerous. So what are we going to take away from this? This strange, sort of uh, lewd, Uh, episode where David is surrounded by enemies. Well, I want to remind us our big idea for the morning goes like this. At just the right time, God delivered us from our enemy. At just the right time. This story is pointing us to, preparing us for the ultimate son of David who will come and be the deliverer of the ultimate enemy. As we think about that, let me just give three very quick implications. Three sort of practical takeaways. This first one is extremely practical. It goes like this. Don't immediately accept the character assassination of another. We've all heard them. We've probably been recipients of them. And what we're hoping in our heart of hearts is if someone says some of that stuff about me or about you, if there's a Zeba that comes along and says something about you, Mephibosheth, surely the king won't listen. Don't immediately accept the character assassination of another. When, not if, but when you receive a report about another person, particularly if that person is a believer, decide in advance to hear the other side first. Pump the brake. Wait. Do not execute justice or judgment based on the testimony of one. There has never in the history of humankind been an absolutely accurate accusation. (laughs) You always know there's another side to the story. I can't tell you how many contexts of counseling I have been in, and I've heard horrible, 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 horrible things that one person has done against another. And then I'll finally get to speak to the other one. Oh, surprise, there were two sides to that coin. Hmm, we don't make decisions based on the testimony of one. There's always two sides to every story. David makes a snap decision to say that Mephibosheth is essentially dead to him. But we have, have the ability to have the testimony of more than one person so that lives are not destroyed. See, one of the things that we have the advantage of is that David has no narrator. One of the most maddening things about the book of Job is we know what's happening in the book of Job, but Job does not. Now, as David is going down the Kidron Valley, up the Mount of Olives, and then over the Mount of Olives towards the Jordan River, it's all going to be fine. But we know that because we have a narration. David doesn't. And sometimes we get into situations and we don't have a narrator. But God's word comes to us and says, no, no, listen, I'm your narrator. The spirit of God indwelling us says, no, 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 I'm your narrator. Trust me. I've told you how this deal is going to end. Let me narrate for you so that you're not operating in the dark in fear and uncertainty and doubt, which will cause you to make snap decisions. Don't ever accept a character assassination of another. Number two, even more important, don't listen to the accusation of the enemy. Don't listen to the accusation of the enemy. As with many, if not most, accusations, there's generally at least a hint or a slice of truth in them. Otherwise, they wouldn't sting. 
But as we give a foothold to that accusation, it robs us of our identity and it makes us forget who God is and what He did in Christ to redeem us. The book of Revelation says that our accuser somehow is given access before the throne room of God and hurls accusations at the brethren day and night, day and night. Let me just tell you, in my case, he's probably right on the money. He's not making stuff up. But there's really good news. In the book of Colossians chapter 2, verses 13 to 15, the Apostle Paul tells us what to do with those accusations. Paul says this, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, Jesus, having forgiven us all our trespasses. Do you see? I was dead, but he spoke words of life. And just like Jesus, he made me alive. And all those accusations are now hitting Teflon because I'm alive again. How did he do that? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. The a warrant for my arrest and execution was nailed to the cross of Christ. And so when you begin to hear those accusations, those whispers of, he doesn't love you, he's disappointed, you've gone beyond his grace, And you preach a sermon to your soul and it sounds just like that. Now, that's enough of that. My arrest warrant and execution writ was nailed to the cross of Christ and it's finished. Do not listen to the accusations of the enemy. Yep, I have to continue in my fallen nature to deal with all kinds of those things. And the great news is that I am loved despite all of my dumb mistakes. Sometimes the greatest word I can hear a single day is God loves me. And he is not disappointed. At just the right time, God delivered us from our enemy. And then, even better news. The third point, the curse is reversed. The curse is reversed. David's behavior sets us up for another king that will come from his line, who will be mocked in the wilderness, who will have men hurl insults at him as he is hanged on a cross, bleeding and dying. Just like David, Jesus is going to come a thousand years later and he's going to be cursed by his countrymen and brothers and accused of all sorts of untruths. And with just a blink, Jesus could have called a trillion angel Abishais to remove all of the heads of Israel. But instead, he does not. He utters no word of defense for himself because he knows that what's at stake it's people like you and me spending an eternity apart from God under curse. So he does the unthinkable. He himself becomes the curse. Galatians 3, verses 13 and 14, Paul says this, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to us the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith at just the right time God delivered us from our enemy now I can try to tell you to go and do all these things and just do better than you did yesterday but you and I will not do it. We won't actually change unless we allow our hearts to be captivated by this Jesus and what he has done for us and why he did it. During this time in Bahurim, as he is at the Jordan River on his way to Jericho, David plops down and his refreshing and he writes many psalms. One of which is Psalm 23. 
most of us are familiar with. And in verse 5, he says, God goes before me and he prepares for me a table in the presence of my enemies. You think David knew anything about enemies? And yet, there he stands, beginning to listen now, finally, more closely to the voice of the narrator. Saying, this is going to turn out okay. Trust me. Just like Corey Ten Boom's father, I am about to hand you your ticket. Trust me. Now, for some of us, we're in a situation where we don't really know this narrator. We don't know how to read his word or to hear from his spirit because we don't believe that Jesus is who he says he was. Well, let me tell you a little bit more about this Jesus just ever so briefly. One of the Psalms that David writes during this time is Psalm 22. David writes Psalm 22, and it's a psalm that the last David, the ultimate David, will later refer to several times. Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, David writes, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Jesus would quote those same words later. Moving ahead to verse 6. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. They hurl curses. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Moving to verse 14. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. David writes this a thousand years before Jesus. I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. And then verse 22, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. This Jesus will come and say, I was your narrator, David, and you had it pretty bad, but you have no idea. I will go even farther to reverse the curse. So I just want to say this morning, if you're here and you're not a believer, then let me just say, according to Scripture, you're still under curse. But the free gift of grace is that He willingly takes your place. And so I invite you to believe. For the rest of us, I want to remind you that at just the right time, God delivers us from our enemy. He has. And we have this great narrator, His Word, His Spirit, and his people, it's going to be okay. At just the right time, God delivered us from our enemy. One of the best ways you can celebrate the narration of God's word, God's spirit, and God's people is to come down and have a scoop of potato salad after church. So let me pray with us, and we'll be dismissed. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that the ultimate son of David did not return fist for fist mockery for mockery, but became the curse and reversed it. Father, I thank you for this narrative. I pray, God, that we will listen more, cl more closely, more clearly to what your word has to say, to what your spirit has to lead us 
and how your people come to guard us. I pray, God, that salvation will come to this house. I pray all these things, Father, in the power of your spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, I didn't get to stand you earlier, so I'm going to ask you to stand up now. We're going to have a word of benediction, and then we will be dismissed. Now, may the Lord bless you. May he keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you, and may you reflect it to one another. God bless. You're dismissed. Have a great week. See you downstairs. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.